Only 4% of universities in the U.S. are R1 research institutions, and Temple University is one of them. This means 100% of students have the opportunity to participate in hands-on learning and research with world-class faculty. With over 600 academic programs across 17 schools and colleges, Philadelphia's largest public university provides students with a rich variety of opportunities and propels graduates to succeed in their careers. Temple University. Schedule a campus tour today at admissions.temple.edu. visit Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. <laughs> The Chumba Life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. My name is Eric Gaskell, and you are listening to the Distorted History Podcast. To speak the truth, the whole truth, frankly... And boldly. I can give you merry tales and joyous laughter. Shameless, unreasoning, unjustified terror. A long struggle for freedom. It really is a revolution. In 1994, Pearl Jam started a war with concert industry giant Ticketmaster. The band wanted to reduce ticket prices so that the highest price ticket for their shows was just $18, which was a third of what promoters thought they could have charged. It wasn't just tickets either that Pearl Jam wanted to make more affordable, as the band also cut the prices on their t-shirts from $23 to $18. The one finest ointment, however, was Ticketmaster, who typically tacked on a service fee of $4 to $8 per ticket which the band thought was out of line for an $18 ticket. Now, this wasn't the first time Pearl Jam had an issue with the company either. When the band had put on a pair of free shows in Seattle in 1992 over the Labor Day weekend, they took umbrage to Ticketmaster charging a $1 service fee on their free tickets. So when it came to their latest tour, they demanded Ticketmaster cut their service charges to $1.80 or less for their shows. This resulted in one cancel tour, and another tour that Pearl Jam had to painstakingly organize themselves. As they were forced to avoid the venues, Ticketmaster had negotiated exclusive agreements with. While ultimately, this attempt to bring down Ticketmaster would not only fail, but result in the company growing even more on the present, the only reason why it looked like Pearl Jam might have stood a chance in this fight was because they were the best-selling band in America at the time. Today's episode, then, is not about that fight, but about the album that launched their career and put them in a position to even attempt this maneuver. Now, admittedly, while Pearl Jam became one of the biggest bands in the world, they aren't among my personal favorites of the bands that come out of Seattle. It should be pretty clear at this point that would be Alice in Chains followed by Soundgarden. In fact, I don't think I've ever really tried to learn any Pearl Jam songs other than maybe Black. It's just for whatever reason... While I liked the songs themselves well enough, the guitar parts never really grabbed me and made me say, I have to know how to play that. Regardless, before I get started talking about the origins of Pearl Jam and the creation of their debut album 10, I like always want to acknowledge my sources, which include articles by Nina Perlman, Eric Wiesbard, Richard Bienstock, Bill Reeder, Jessica Lechtman, Chad Childress, 
Karen Bliss, Cork Grow, Ed Power, and Isabel Snyder, among others, which will all be listed like always on this podcast Twitter page. Now, with all that being said, let's begin. The story of how Pearl Jam became one of the biggest bands in rock history starts with a little-known band by the name of Green River, which formed in Seattle in 1984. The band had gotten its name after guitarist Steve Turner spotted someone wearing a shirt for nearby Green River College, which reminded singer Mark Arn of the CCR song Green River and also of the Green River serial killer, and so it became the name of their band. Many consider Green River to be the proto-grunge band. Not only was their heavily distorted hard rock mixed with punk sound highly representative of what people would think of when they think of the Seattle sound, but their 1987 EP Dry as a Bone was marketed by their label Sub Pop as, quote, ultra-loose grunge that destroyed the morals of a generation, which seems to be the first time the word grunge was used to describe the music that was being made in the Seattle underground. However, the very combination of influences which made Green River one of the earliest grunge bands would ultimately lead them to splitting apart before their first full-length album, Rehab Doll, could come out. While bassist Jeff Ament and guitarist Stone Gassar were more inspired by successful bands like ACDC and Kiss, singer Mark Arn took the majority of his inspiration from punk bands like Black Flag, which upon re-listening to Rehab Doll is clear as day from Mark Arn, who said of the album, quote, it has rock wrists, and then I'm just spewing darkness over the top of it. That might not have been the best approach, but it's the approach I had. The members of the band remembered these divisions between the group being illustrated most clearly when they all went to see Jane's Addiction perform. Jeff and Stone clearly loved what they were hearing, while it was equally as obvious that Mark was not enjoying himself. So Green River would split and form two very different but very important groups in the Seattle scene. Sinker Mark Arn, who wanted the band to go in a much more punk direction, joined forces with guitarist Steve Turner to form Mudhoney, whose healthy dose of fuzz distortion proved to be influential on the grunge sound. Meanwhile, bassist Jeff Amant and guitarist Stone Gassard, who had larger ambitions and wanted to go in a much more rock-oriented direction, formed Mother Lovebone with vocalist and born rock star Andrew Wood. But then, just as Mother Lovebone seemed to be on the verge of success, on March 19, 1990, Andy Wood, at just 24 years old, died of an accidental heroin overdose just before their debut album Apple released. In the wake of this tragedy, Mother Lovebone dissolved, leaving a man and Gassar to drift. Not only had they lost their friend, but they lost years of hard work. Just as they were about to live their dreams by going on tour and becoming rock stars, they now had to start completely over. In the months following Wood's death, neither musician really had a direction, but between Chris Cornell and his tribute to Wood Temple the Dog, and guitarist Mike McCready wanted to get Jeff and Stone to play together again, the two musicians ended up working on a new band. Mike McCready had known Stone since they were in like 6th or 7th grade, and they had gone to Judas Priest and Iron Maiden concerts together, so McCready was very much a heavy metal style shredder. So while Stone and Jeff had been busy with Green River, McCready had been playing in a local punk-slash-metal band called Shadow. Recently, though, Mike had really gotten into the blues after seeing the last Watts on TV and having his mind blown by the part featuring Muddy Wooders. Since that moment, McCready had found himself inspired by the likes of B.B. King and Stevie Ray Vaughan, leading him to dial back some of his heavy metal shredder tendencies of seeing how many notes he could play as fast as possible. 
Yet while bassist Jeff Ament was still more of a punk guy, taking inspiration from bands like Minor Threat, all three musicians had a shared love of classic rock bands like Alice Cooper and Aerosmith. So the three musicians gathered in Gossard's parents' attic, where both Green River and Mother Lovebone had once rehearsed, and they started crafting new songs. The music which Gossard was writing during this period was different than what he had been playing in Mother Lovebone, which had had a kind of funk vibe to it. The stuff that Gossard was coming up with now, though, was darker and sadder in tone, as he dealt with his grief. Once the three of them felt like they had something, they demoed their ideas with the help of drummers Chris Field and Matt Cameron from Soundgarden, who was widely considered to be the best drummer in the area. While this would prove to be an important moment, it didn't seem so like at the time, as according to a meant quote, there was no pressure because they weren't really songs. They were just song ideas, jams, and that sort of stuff. It was totally cool because at that point, it was just kind of picking up the vibe and going with it. In all, they made rough demos of five instrumental tracks, which they titled Dollar Short, A GT in Cave, Footsteps, Richard's E, and E Ballad. Yet while they might have had these song ideas, they weren't really a band yet. They were just a bass player and two guitarists. They still needed a vocalist and a drummer to fill out their lineup. So this proto-group made copies of the cassette and sent them around as a part of their search for a singer and a drummer. One of the people who ended up with one of these tapes was former Red Hot Chili Peppers drummer Jack Irons. They hoped Jack would join them and become their drummer, but he didn't want to uproot his pregnant wife. Jack would, however, pass the tape on to a friend of his who he liked to play basketball with from San Diego. This friend was a singer named Eddie Vedder who had recently split from his band Bad Radio. So in September 1990, as Vedder worked his graveyard shift at a Chevron tank farm, the young singer to help pass the time put on this cassette he had been given by his friend from a group of guys from up in Seattle. He would listen to the tape over and over again throughout his shift, so much so that he could still hear the songs in his head as he went surfing after he got off. It was then in what Eddie has described as a sleep-deprived state that he got this idea that the first three tracks all told a story like a kind of mini rock opera. As Vedder started putting words to the music, he wanted to write down his ideas as soon as possible lest he lose them. So seeing as how his home was too far away, he headed to his girlfriend's place which was nearby. It was there, while still dripping wet from the surf, that Vetter started writing down his ideas. The first track, which at the time was called Dollar Short, had actually started out life as a Mother Lovebone song, which they had performed a time or two with Andy. Vetter, meanwhile, not knowing any of this, began his three-part opera with a story loosely based upon the time in his own life when he learned that not only was the man he always assumed was his father was really his stepfather, but also that his biological father had died years earlier. While fans would eventually see this song's refrain as life-affirming, for Eddie, that wasn't his intended message. For him, it was an experience that had scarred him. Not only did he feel betrayed by his parents for being lied to all these years, but it also felt like they were trying to make him feel less special when they suggested that he got his musical talents from his biological father. For Eddie, then, he saw being alive as a kind of curse. But over the years, after seeing so many fans respond to that refrain as an uplifting message, Vetter too embraced this new meaning as well. That being said, while the reveal of his true parentage was based upon Vetter's real-life experience, the rest of the song is most certainly not. To set up the rest of his three-part opera, the mother then seeing so much of the man she used to love in her son begins an incestuous relationship with him. All of these events psychologically break the opera's main character, 
and in the second track of the trilogy, which would be renamed once, the character then becomes a serial killer. Then in the third track, which became known as Footsteps, the character from Alive is ultimately executed for his crimes. With his vision mapped out, Vedder would record his vocals over top the instrumentals, and then send the tape back to Seattle. Now, Eddie's wasn't the only tape Gassard and Ament would receive from prospective vocalists, but his reportedly was clearly head and shoulders above the rest. The kind of stuff he was singing about and his delivery really seemed to fit the place they were in following Andy's death. So after a trip down to California where they met Eddie to get a feel for what kind of guy he was, they invited him up to Seattle to see how they worked as a band. Eddie was then lucky enough to be able to take a week off from work, and they even sprang for a plane ticket for him to come up to Seattle, which surprised Eddie, who half expected to have to hitchhike his way up the coast. When he landed, Vetter had a surprise for his potential bandmates. He'd written some more lyrics, this time for the track titled E Ballad that would be renamed Black after the lyrics he penned about a painful breakup. Vetter would meet up with the rest of the band, which now included drummer Dave Krusen, in an art gallery's basement that was not exactly located in what you might call the best part of town. According to Vetter, quote, The alley that we were on was like Crack Alley Central. Despite this, the art studio basement would not only function as the band's rehearsal space, but it also served as Eddie's home for the entirety of his week in Seattle. Whenever he wasn't rehearsing with the rest of the band, it seemed like Eddie was constantly writing. More than once when the others arrived the next morning after going home for the night, they found that Eddie had more or less stayed up writing and he had lyrics for another song written for them. Then there was the one time when he was locked outside the room and couldn't get in while the others were in there working on a song. As he waited for someone to let him in, Vedder could hear the music they were working on, and so he started penning lyrics inspired by his girlfriend Beth and imagery from his time surfing, which would become Oceans, and that was far from the only song they wrote during this period. The band really clicked during that first week together, and they would come out of the experience with 11 complete songs. Among them was Release, which was a message from Vedder to the father he had never had a chance to meet. It was a song that just came together organically. According to Vetter, quote, Everyone plugged in their guitars and started this kind of tinkling, and I started humming, moaning, or whatever. And then all of a sudden, it was like this six-minute song that totally rolled and peaked. Yet while Amet and Gassard will connect with the emotions that Vetter was putting out with his lyrics and vocals, Gassard admits that he and Eddie didn't really hit it off personally. The issue was, according to Gassard, they were, quote, very different kinds of people. Yet while Amet and Gassard could connect with the emotions that Vedder was putting out with his lyrics and vocals, Gassard admits that he and Eddie didn't really hit it off personally. The issue was, according to Gassard, they were, quote, very different kinds of people. In a lot of ways, Eddie was kind of the opposite personality-wise to Gassard and Amet's previous frontman, Andrew Wood. Where Andy was this outgoing, flamboyant, born rock star, Eddie was very quiet and shy. Of course, this is also good, because the last thing Amet and Gassard wanted to do was replace Andy with someone who looked, sounded, and or acted exactly like him. Vetter was so different from Wood in his personality, voice, and performance, he was kind of perfect. This new band was really coming together, but bands need names, and none of them could really come up with one they liked. So lacking any other good ideas, when a trading card for a basketball player from the New York Nets who went by the name Mookie Blaylock ended up stuck in the cassette case of one of their early demos, they chose to name their band after him. Mookie Blaylock would then play their first show together on the 22nd of October at a female biker bar called The Off-Ramp, which also happens to be the same bar where Soundgarden was filmed performing at for Cameron Crowe's singles, 
and despite being a brand new band, quite a few people apparently showed up that night because they wanted to see Stone and Jeff have some good luck for a change. However, there may have also been some resentment directed toward this outsider who was kind of stepping into Andy's spot. Then in November, as Eddie was in the process of moving up to Seattle from San Diego, for good this time, the rest of the band more or less focused on the Temple of the Dog project with Chris Cornell and Matt Cameron to honor their friend Andrew Wood. Then one day, as they were working on the song Hunger Strike, Eddie happened to be hanging around waiting to rehearse with Mookie Blaylock, at which point, he noticed that Chris was struggling with some of the deeper parts, so he stepped up to the mic and lent a hand. Cornell, upon hearing this new guy sing in his stead, immediately recognized how perfect Vedder's voice was for those parts. With that realization, and figuring that including Eddie would be a great way to welcome him into the Seattle music scene, Cornell invited Vedder to sing on the track and to add backing vocals on a couple others as well. There would still be a lot of grieving for the loss of Andrew Wood by the time Mookie Blaylock again took the stage, opening for Alice in Chains in November at the Moore Theater, which meant that again, there were more than a few people trying to get a feel for this new singer. However, by the end of the night, it seemed like everyone had started to embrace him. This may have been in part due to the fact that while Vetter was described by multiple people who had interacted with him as being almost painfully shy, that shyness seemed to disappear when he got on stage. He became this energetic and dynamic figure who seemed to have a propensity to find something to climb up, hang from, and or jump off of. Mookie Blaylock would continue to tour with Alice in Chains along the West Coast, but by the time they returned home, the members of the band were seriously considering finding a new name, if for no other reason then they figured it was likely that it would face a lawsuit of some kind for using Mookie Blaylock's name. The problem was, the reason they had started calling themselves Mookie Blaylock in the first place was because they couldn't think of a good name and that really hadn't changed. The most they had was bassist Jeff Ament wanted to use Pearl in the name somewhere, but beyond that, they really didn't seem to have a clue. The thing that was really making this name change a pressing issue was despite only being a band for a couple months, they were about to sign a recording contract with Epic. This was a unique situation, not only because they were such a new band, but because the men and Gassar were technically signed with Polygram because of Mother Lovebone, which meant Polygram essentially owned any music they produced. However, since signing that original contract with Polygram, they had become disillusioned with the label. Now, Polygram were willing to let Ament and Gassard out of their contract, providing they paid off the $500,000 they owed the label. Luckily, the young A&R rep responsible for signing Mother Lovebone in the first place, Michael Goldstone, had left Polygram and now worked for Epic. Goldstone was then able to convince his new bosses at Epic to loan the band the money they needed, which then allowed them to sign with Epic. So the band was able to free themselves from a deal they didn't want, and were about to sign a brand new recording contract. Still, that little issue of what they were going to call themselves still remained. As luck would have it though, inspiration would strike in February 1991 when the band headed out to New York City to officially sign their deal with Epic Records. While they were there, Ament, Vetter, and Gassard made the trip out to Long Island to see Neil Young perform, which also gave them the chance to see Sonic Youth open the show, who had years earlier helped out their old band Green River by giving them the opening slot on one of their shows. At this point, bassist Jeff Ament only knew he wanted to use the word Pearl as part of their new band's name, but other than that, they hadn't come up with anything. This Neil Young concert, though, would provide the inspiration for the other half of their new name, as Neil Young and his band managed to play only nine songs over three hours. 
The members of Mookie Blaylock were kind of amused and amazed as Neil Young and his band spent the night basically jamming as they stretched a runtime of their songs, which inspired a men to turn to Gassard at one point and ask, what about Pearl Jam? The name stuck, although in early interviews, members of Pearl Jam would claim that the name originated from Vedder's great-grandma Pearl's recipe for a lucigenic jam. So Mookie Blaylock was no more. However, Pearl Jam would reference their former namesake by naming their upcoming debut album after Blaylock's jersey number 10, which they soon started crafting in Seattle's London Bridge studio with the assistance of producer Rich Powerchar, who they had worked with previously for the Temple of the Dog album. According to guitarist Mike McCready, while Eddie Vedder would eventually become Pearl Jam's band leader, for their debut album it was mostly Stone and Jeff guiding the ship. As such, guitarist Stone Gassard was basically the main songwriter for 10. Gassard took the lead writing the riffs, while Mike just kind of followed along, playing Stevie Ray Vaughan or Hendrix-style chords behind what Stone was doing. It's not surprising then that compared to the other grunge bands, Pearl Jam had much more of a classic rock and blues vibe, on this album at least. By the time they walked into the London Bridge studio, Pearl Jam had most of the songs that would appear on 10 already written, with only Porch, Deep, Why Go, and Garden written during their time there. The lyrics for Deep were inspired by the time Vedder saw a lighter fall from seemingly out of the sky to land in front of him on the sidewalk. As he looked up, he saw what he would describe as the most pathetic sight he'd ever seen. Standing looking out over a balcony above Vedder was a sickly thin man with a band wrapped around his arm. This man held a spoon in one hand and had a needle sticking out of the inside of his elbow. This glimpse of this sickly scabby man was enough to convince Eddie to never follow that path. My Go, meanwhile, is practically dripping with anger and frustration. This song was originally titled for Heather, as it was written for a girl Vetter knew in Chicago who also inspired the song Leash off of Verses. This young woman had been institutionalized at age 14 for smoking pot. Her story, though, unfortunately, is far from unique, as she was a victim of what has come to be known as the troubled teen industry. According to the National Youth Rights Association website, quote, Every year, thousands of young people are sent against their will to facilities designed to control their behavior. These facilities have several different names. Boot camps, behavior modification facilities, wilderness therapy, gay conversion. But they are all marketed to parents who feel they need to change their child's behavior and are known collectively as the troubled teen industry. These services claim to fix anything the parents think is a problem, being disrespectful, staying out late, drug use, entitlement, or playing too many video games can all fall under this category. The method of diagnosis is often a brief online questionnaire that is almost guaranteed to yield some kind of disorder. If parents decide to heed the program's advice, their children are trapped in highly unregulated and often secluded camps with no means of defense or outside contact. These schools, though, don't work, as they have been shown scientifically to increase the negative behavior they claim to stop. And regardless of whether they are effective or not, again, according to the National Youth Rights Association website, quote, the people who work at them either treat healthy and normal behavior as a problem or fail to understand the importance of consent in treatment of any potential issue. There are no federal laws governing these schools, which means these facilities are also breeding grounds for torture and abuse. There was one law that would have banned physical abuse in these institutions, but it died in committee thanks to politicians who thought this was a matter best handled by the states. However, 
states have been hesitant to intervene because these schools exist in a legal loophole. Because private boarding schools are not required to be licensed or accredited, therefore they are not regularly inspected. The majority of these institutions, whatever they may call themselves, operate under the guidelines of an organization known as the Worldwide Association of Specialty Schools and Programs, WWASPS. This organization, which in the past has been endorsed by the likes of Mitt Romney and Rick Santorum, was founded by a man named Robert Litchfield. While WWASPS was supposedly non-profit, the Litchfields ran multiple for-profit companies that worked hand-in-hand -hand with their supposedly non-profit organization. These companies handled, among other things, all the billing, marketing, training, and transportation for the WWASPS facilities. And, by the way, it's not unusual when it comes to these types of schools. When they say transportation, they mean abducting the child from their parents' home. Now, while these kidnappings are technically legal, since they have the parents' consent, that does not make the situation of being snatched and potentially handcuffed by strangers in what appears to be a legitimate kidnapping any less terrifying for the child being kidnapped. While their guidelines still seem to be in widespread use, WWASPS itself is, at least according to their own officials, no longer in business as a result of widespread allegations of physical and psychological abuses of the teenagers put into their care. Additionally, while the organization itself no longer officially exists, the people involved in it still operate multiple facilities. The children who are sent to these types of facilities, upon arrival, oftentimes have to undergo a cavity search, are put in a uniform, are forbidden to talk, and during the first week, they are forced to dig holes and carry buckets of water used to wash dishes instead of participating in any type of schooling. These children are only allowed to contact their parents after three months, and even that call is monitored. That's just the beginning, though. According to a teen who was sent to one of these facilities, quote, I didn't realize that we had to ask to do anything at first, and I went to the bathroom once without asking during my lunch period, and a guard jumped on me and pushed me to the ground screaming at me, asking what I was doing and telling me I couldn't just get up. He dug his elbow into my back so hard I couldn't breathe. This teen was then put into solitary confinement for three days, and during his four months at the facility, he would be physically assaulted by the guards eight more times. While this teen in question was able to survive his experience in one of these institutions, not all have been so lucky. Children have been known to die in these facilities. Some have committed suicide, while one 14-year-old named Brendan Blum in 2007 died while in solitary confinement when his bowel twisted during the night and staff did not notify the on-call nurse. This likely happened because solitary confinement in these schools is both a very common form of punishment and also especially cruel, as in addition to the normal psychological torture aspects, in these schools, when in solitary confinement, the children are forced to lay on their stomachs for extended periods, with no food, water, or access to a toilet. On top of all of that, staff and teachers have been charged with child sexual abuse. As a result of all of this, many of these schools in other countries have been shut down. Yet here in the U.S., Utah alone has 100 of these so-called troubled teen institutions, primarily because they are hugely profitable, which pretty much guarantees they aren't going away anytime soon. Meanwhile, back at the main topic of this episode, both Deep and Wide Go are also notable because Jeff and Men played a 12-string hammer bass on them. 
which as I've mentioned in the past, is a bass with its strings tripled instead of just doubled like on a 12-string guitar, thereby adding more depth to the sound. This instrument would also be featured in their eventual hit song Jeremy. Also written while in the studio was the song Garden, which is one of my favorite tracks off of 10, and it was printed primarily in response to George Bush, the first one, announcing that we were invading Iraq for the first time. For most of these songs, the members of Pearl Jam managed to get them in a couple of takes. However, there was one song that terrorized them. According to Mike McCready, they tried recording Evenflow something like 50 to 70 times in the studio, and they still never got what they all considered to be a really good clean take. For whatever reason, they just could not quite get the feel of the song right, which apparently frustrated Stone Gassar to no end and led him to storm out of the room multiple times in frustration throughout the entire process. Still, they managed to finish the album despite these difficulties. However, shortly after wrapping up recording, drummer Dave Crewson was forced to enter rehab for alcohol addiction. According to Crewson, the other guys gave him plenty of opportunities to clean up his act, but he just couldn't stop drinking. So finally, left with no other choice, Crewson was fired and eventually replaced for the tour by Dave Aberzies. The product of all their hard work, 10, would be released in August 1991, a stunning accomplishment for a band that just came together less than a year earlier. Alive, which had been known as Dollar Short before Vetter added lyrics to it, was the first single off the album. The song and the band would slowly gain in popularity over the coming months, thanks in part to their opening for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. Their success on this tour helped to land Pearl Jam on the radio more and more often, which saw Alive slowly rise up to the 16th spot on the mainstream rock charts. Outside factors would also influence Pearl Jam's growth and popularity over the coming year. While 10 was released to generally positive reviews, it wasn't seen as a huge deal at the time. However, the musical world changed when just a month later, the video for Nirvana Smells Like Teen Spirit debuted on MTV. Grunge was suddenly a thing. So when Pearl Jam's next single, Evenflow, which was inspired by Vedder's empathy for the homeless, was released in April of 92, it hit the number 3 spot on the mainstream rock charts. Meanwhile, while performing, Vedder would continue his hobby of climbing up and jumping off of things to go crowd surfing. Eventually it got to the point that the other members of the band started taking bets when they arrived at a venue on what Eddie was going to climb onto that night. Sometimes though, Eddie took things a bit too far, something even he realized himself while opening up for both the Red Hot Chili Peppers and Nirvana in Vedder's hometown of San Diego. On that day, Vedder climbed an I-beam he estimates as being like 100 feet up in the air. Regardless of how accurate this estimate was, at the very least, it was clear as he got out there that a fall from that height probably was going to mean his death. Vedder had made the climb out because he felt that since they were opening for Nirvana, he had to do something crazy because, quote, our first record was good, but their first record was better. However, upon realizing the danger that he had put himself in, and the fact that his mother was there watching, Vetter thought better of his stunt. So he somehow managed to get back to the safety of the stage. And while Eddie doesn't remember how he managed to do that, he does remember throwing up shortly afterwards, thanks to the sheer terror he had just put his body through. Yet as big as this tour with the Chili Peppers was, Pearl Jam really felt like they made it when the Chili Peppers invited them to take part in Lollapalooza. It was at this point that their popularity really seemed to skyrocket, which among other things meant the end of Vetter going into the crowds, as following a Lollapalooza show in Ontario, 
By the time the singer made it back to the stage, he was bloody and his clothes were in tatters from people trying to get a piece of him. This event occurred at about the same time the music video for the song Jeremy premiered on MTV and went pretty quickly into heavy rotation on the channel. The song had been written after Vetter read an article about a troubled teen named Jeremy Wade Dell, who at just 15 years old on the 8th of January 1991 arrived late to his English class in Richardson, Texas. Jeremy's teacher naturally told him to go get in a mitten slip, and he left the room. When he returned, however, Jeremy announced he'd gotten what he really left for, at which point he pulled out a 356 Magnum that he placed in his mouth and killed himself with in front of his teacher and 30 classmates. This story connected with Vetter, who recalled a somewhat similar incident from his own childhood. A kid who he had a few run-ins with, including an actual fight a year earlier, would in the 7th grade bring a gun into his geography class where he shot up a 1,000-gallon fish tank. Vetter, who had been in the hallway at the time of this incident, had heard the gunshots. The song and the video were a massive hit for the band, although they didn't exactly like that the video was edited, so the actor portraying Jeremy was not shown sticking the gun into his mouth. Not only did this lead to confusion as to whether or not he had killed himself or shot at his fellow students, but because it didn't fit the vision they had for the video. The idea was to make it as visceral as possible. They had a message, which was, you do this big thing, you kill yourself in this dramatic fashion, but ultimately, nothing really changes. The video starts out with newspaper clippings stating it was a sunny 64 degree day in a little suburban neighborhood, and it ends with the same thing. According to Vetter, quote, It does nothing. Nothing changes. The world goes on and you're gone. The best revenge is to live on and prove yourself. Be stronger than those people. The band felt so strongly about this message and the continued and increased gun violence in America that they released an unedited version of the video just last year, in 2020, on National Gun Violence Awareness Day. The experience of making the video, the conflict with censors, and the feedback from people who loved the song but hated the video led the band to stop making videos for several years, with Jeff Ament stating, quote, 10 years from now, I don't want people to remember our songs as videos. According to Mike McCready, though, at the time, he was a bit confused by this decision, as this was what they had wanted since they were kids. He recognized, though, that Jeff Stone and especially Eddie were overwhelmed by the amount of attention they were getting. It was all too much for them to deal with. This decision to stop doing videos until 1998, when they released an animated video for the song Do the Evolution, was probably not welcomed by the label execs. But Pearl Jam would prove that they weren't afraid to use their popularity to fight back against what their label wanted them to do. The first and clearest example of this was seen following the breakout popularity of Jeremy, at which point, Sony Music execs wanted to capitalize on Pearl Jam's momentum and release Black Next. The thing was, Black was a very personal song for Vetter, who has never openly talked about the story behind it. So he pushed back, because according to Vetter, quote, That's not why we wrote those songs. We didn't write to make hits, but those fragile songs get crushed by the business. Black then was too personal to be turned into a single, and the rest of the band supported Eddie in this. The pressure and attention being put on the band was simply becoming too much. This is the point when Eddie basically took over leadership of the group, and when they actively started to pull back from all this madness. The band, against the label's wishes, stopped making music videos, and despite the demand for the band, and especially Vetter, to appear in commercials for companies like Calvin Klein, they steadfastly turned down all those opportunities as well.
However, despite never officially being released as a single, Black was still picked up by radio stations across the nation, at which point it reached number three on the mainstream rock charts. As for 10 itself, the album would ultimately peak at the number two spot on the Billboard charts in 92, and eventually sell over 100 million copies in the US alone. Pearl Jam's follow-up album, Versus, which released in 93, would sell over 950,000 copies in its first week, which set a record that stood for five years. Pearl Jam, though, was basically the biggest band in the world, and as such, they could put their foot down and refuse to make any music videos or release songs as singles if they didn't want to. However, their fight against Ticketmaster would prove that not even the biggest band in the world could hope to win a fight against that corporate giant. Pearl Jam's self-run tour did not go as planned. A bill designed to require that all ticket stubs show the cost of service fees was defeated in Congress thanks to Ticketmaster's high-priced and high-powered lobbyists. In an antitrust investigation into Ticketmaster's exclusivity agreement, which had been started by the Department of Justice, came to the conclusion that Ticketmaster was, somehow, not violating any antitrust laws according to a terse statement released by the government. Since that time, Ticketmaster would only grow stronger, merging with Live Nation in 2010. Meanwhile, ticket prices and service fees have only gone up, thanks to the corporation's exclusivity deals with 80 of the top 100 arenas in the U.S. as of 2018. Thank you for listening to Distorted History. If you would like to help out, please rate and review the podcast and tell your friends if you think they'll be interested. If you're feeling especially generous and would like to help keep this podcast going, please consider visiting my Ko-fi page at ko-fi.com slash distortedhistory and donating a few bucks. Anything you can give is greatly appreciated. I will be posting updates on future episodes and sources there in addition to posting them on Twitter as I usually do. With all that being said, once again, thank you for listening and until next time. something that's not boring a laundry oh a book club computer solitaire huh ah oh, sorry we were looking for chumba casino that's right chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino style games join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes chumbacasino.com no purchase necessary by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details